0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Rich State of Mind. In this episode, I'm talking to Jessica Shrout. She's the owner of Circle Three Branding, a marketing agency dedicated to the waste and recycling industry. Her passion grew from a frustration that no outside agency seemed to understand the needs of the waste world. And so I like this interview because it talks about finding a specific niche uh, where you can excel in. And it may not be the sexiest, it may not be the most liked, but if you're solving a problem, you may be able to hit a market uh, that provides good profit and you'll be able to make a difference at the same time. So check out this episode. It's a great and unique one. And thanks for listening. Please visit our site at www.richstateofmind.com, where we provide content on real estate, personal finances and self-development. Share your story information by posting a blog on our site so that the Rich State of Mind community continues to grow in knowledge. You can also follow our Instagram page at rich underscore state brand to find out about exclusive offers and discount promotions for our apparel. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast because it's free. Hey, Jessica, thank you so much for taking the time this evening on this episode. If you could please tell us a little bit about you and what you do.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So my name is Jessica Shroud, and I'm a marketer by trade. I run my own agency, Circle 3 Branding, and I created that from scratch. That's what I'm doing today, full time.
0: And what does Circle 3 do
1: we do marketing and brand strategy primarily for businesses that are in the waste and recycling industry. We do have a, cli- a few clients that we take on from other industries, some retail, agriculture, and education. But my bread and butter is definitely the waste industry.
0: And so what made you want to go into that industry? Is Because it's a very unique industry that I. it's my first time actually discussing.
1: Yeah. So there's a couple of reasons. One is that waste is, and I'm sure some of the executives in the industry are going to scream when they hear me say this, but it's fairly recession proof. So no matter what people are going to be producing trash and there's going to be recycling that needs to be taken care of. Um, That'll ebb and flow, but it's not like say working in entertainment where that just fully stopped for, you know, during the COVID pandemic, this, trash is kind of eternal for better or worse. So there was that. Um, The other fact of the matter is that I could do it. I had been in, um, I guess, working adjacent to the waste industry for a number of years when my career with that company came to an end. And I realized there had been opportunity there. So I'm like, okay, I, I can work in this industry. I know enough to well, let's say I haven't driven the trucks. I haven't run a route myself, but I know enough about it to ask the right questions for my customers to help them arrive at the right answer to do whatever they need to do for the brand. And then the third reason was that it's a niche that I can occupy that I'm fairly unthreatened in. And by that, I mean, there are tons of marketing agencies out there, but for the most part, trash is a very unsexy industry. It's dirty, it's gross. It's kind of repetitive in the sense of um, it's not like the fashion industry where there's new things. Mm -hmm. It's not like the um, pet products industry where there's always something cute. And, you know, you're looking to get great photos of amazing dogs and cats. It's not something that a lot of people want to do. So, not only do I know the industry to a certain extent, no one else wants to really compete with me for it because they want to do cool stuff and then move on to the next cool project that's in another industry, which is great. That's a lot of fun. And um, I'm fairly protected by the ups and downs of the economy because trash continues to be made for better or worse. So it's really kind of safe, fun, quirky um, industry for me where I can specialize and set myself apart because of that. And it's always a conversation starter anywhere I go.
0: I I can imagine. And so uh, when it comes to marketing and branding for um, waste uh, companies, what is a unique approach you have to take uh, when it comes to those types of companies versus uh, uh, vice you dealing with something that's more sexy?
1: Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's There is a bit of a differentiation that needs to be made because a lot of, let's say, um, I'll call them civilians. In this case, people who are not in the industry, just general, like people who have a home or an apartment and they're just throwing stuff away like their normal business, they kind of view trash like a commodity in terms of they're going to choose the lowest bidder to do their trash service um, if you even have a choice. Sometimes it's your municipality that makes that choice for you and they put the trash out on the curb or in the bin and all they care about is, is it gone on time? And does it continue to be removed on time? They don't really wanna think of it beyond that. And there's this whole fascinating industry that's really big on um, green practices and conservation that the two of us as people that throw things away and use their services really don't think about. So there's this whole marriage between the waste industry and the environmentalism movement that is kind of happening under the radar that I think needs to be promoted more. And so we're fighting against people who don't really see it as something to care about. And we are also working with um, trying to combat bad information. So there are lots of people who are getting really excited about doing green things. And um, recycling the right way, recycling as much as possible, reducing their footprint. And so you get people who are putting out information to a broad audience because they have a lot of followers, because they are, let's say, influencers, bloggers or whatever. And sometimes the message is not accurate. So then your local um, waste company is dealing with the fallout from people saying, don't recycle this or always recycle that. And that bad information will catch up with you eventually when you're paying for your trash service because they have to add, you know, extra people to sort through the waste or it takes longer. So costs have to increase. And so there's this sort of ripple effect that you're not aware is happening because of this bad information. So it's part the excitement of trying to help people see waste and recycling as a service that they should be actively thinking about and also combating that bad information.
0: And so I always thought that um, the waste industry was usually by the city and that uh, if you wanted, let's say if I, you know, when I've got out uh, the homes that I may try to renovate, I usually have like a trash, a personal contractor that has (laughs) his own waste company where he just demolishes everything, gets his own dumpster. Outside of that, I thought that was it. Um, No. So yeah, I thought it was just one of the, so it's either your small contractor that just handles your, hey, I'm just trying to get rid of the stuff in my house with, you know, with your small dumpster, or it's the city having the, the two uh, trash men come in the truck and t- throw the trash can in there and then go about their day. Uh, I didn't know it was the industry to where it was, it was private. Uh, other than maybe the nonprofit organizations that are all about being green, uh, that, that was as far as my knowledge was on that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not an expert in the the business models per se, but there are um, there are some companies that are national and they're public, like on the stock exchange that large. There are others that are specifically run by your municipality, like city of Miami-Dade. And then there are others that are contracted by the city. So these could be the national haulers or Local private guys, and then there are the private haulers where they have their their own brand. They manage everything. They chase down contracts. They fight for bids along with the big national companies. And then there are some organizations that are two guys and a pickup truck. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's still a um, a real business model, and it varies so much. And it, you know, once you get outside of the larger municipalities, you do see a variety and. Just where I live, I think I had the choice of at least two, if not three, waste and recycling companies to choose from when I moved here, which was new to me. I've been used to living within city limits where you kind of get what you get based on negotiations through the city and the hauler. So this was like, who do I choose? What do I do? And if you don't, if you're not thinking about it the way I do on a day-to-day basis, you're just shopping for price, which is fair. You know, why not choose the the lowest price option to suit your needs? That's that's what we do with a lot of things.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, where do you uh, where where did you move to?
1: I moved from Western Maryland and Central Pennsylvania area to Muncie, Indiana. So I Never went from the mountains to the Midwest.
0: And so I wanted to pinpoint on something that you said that I think a lot of people need to think about when they start their own business or just getting into. Uh, bit, you know, entrepreneurship period. And it's finding a niche that you can f- excel in with l- limited amount of resistance. Now, I'm not saying if, if you have a passion, like my passion is finance and real estate. So like that's oversaturated, right? It's a lot of people doing that. But mm-hmm. if you don't mind being flexible or Uh, Like we talked about a little bit earlier, you may be exposed to maybe even like this episode and realize, you know what, I can do that in this particular niche that is not uh, oversaturated and succeed. Maybe I have to move. Maybe I don't. Maybe it's a need that's already needed in this area. But finding uh, a a need that is not, uh, I guess you could say, you know, overly saturated or that people don't realize that they need. Uh, just identifying a problem. That's a big thing about business, right? Is identifying what the problem is in an area uh, that nobody else has solved. So I think it's pretty cool. It's a, it's a different uh, take on uh, on yeah. business that you have. I, I really do like this. This is refreshing. And so uh, I wanted to break down uh, how how do you brand these companies? So we talked a little bit about the strategy. Uh, what does B2B and B2C planning mean?
1: Sure. Um- and you know what? If you don't mind, I'd love to talk about the niche thing too. So if you okay, to yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I have a lot of thoughts on the niche focus, and I like to talk to younger people about planning a career in whatever it is they hope to do. Because as children, we're exposed to so few job options. Like you kind of see what your culture is, and you know that the well-paying jobs are doctor, lawyer. Um, performer, athlete, and maybe you could be a teacher or maybe something else in the medical world. Marine biologist was like a big one because I love dolphins. So, you know, this is kind of the thing that all kids want to do, but you don't see how many layers and how many options there are. And I was talking to my nephew when he was entering college, trying to figure out what he wanted to be. And he said he wanted to be a mechanical engineer. And I really thought, well, I know you think that's a well-paying job and it can be, but I know that's not what you love. And so I was telling him, sure, do the thing that makes good business sense for your financial future, that's fine. Go where there is a need to be filled and um, a good market for it. And I'll give you another example. I uh, was thinking about going into law school and I had been accepted into a great law school a few years after the, I guess the 07, 08 recession. Horrible time to go into law school. It was saturated with students who, you know, several hundred thousand dollars in debt and not a good market to be in unless you had some sort of connection, like you were maybe going to inherit a family firm or something like that. Just super competitive. So I opted not to do that um, because there were just so many young lawyers out and about. And that got me thinking similar to engineering that there are gonna be so many of those. So how do you stand out from the crowd? Even if you love that field, what do you do that makes you so incredibly employable versus all the other people that you graduate with? And I was telling him, you love music. So fine, go be a mechanical engineer if you want to, but how about you double major or at least minor in music because you're doing something that makes you happy And you might find a way to turn your mechanical engineering into something that is in the music field, which I know would make him much happier than like designing equipment or machinery. So that was my advice for him. And that kind of, that's the advice I give to every young student that I'm working with is sure, do the thing that you think is going to give you um, a stable financial future if that's your goal, but twist it around, find something that makes it uniquely yours and that few could compete with.
0: No, I I love that advice. And that is what helps. I think a little bit going a little bit ahead, but what we kind of talk about the millennials, right? I think that has been the, uh, that has definitely been the focus when it comes to millennials as far as being, still being me. I don't want to be just another, uh, you know, person in the assembly line. I want to be an individual in some way and do what I love.
1: Well, and we were given bad advice too. Go to college, study something, and there'll be a great career waiting for you. Mm -hmm. And that's often not the case. You know, for whatever cultural or socioeconomic factors that we're facing, it turns out that going and just getting a four-year degree isn't the key to your future because there's a lot of competition. So you have to get creative. And then there is this millennial drive to stay true to yourself and not just become your career. Yes. So. Yeah. Plus,
0: uh, I looked up a little fact that YouTube created uh, 250 thousand uh, jobs because of um, based off of how much people are making. The YouTubers are making. Uh, I
1: had no idea. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's fascinating. Equal,
0: yeah, as much revenue as the as the uh, YouTubers are making, it was equal to 250 thousand jobs. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a good amount of jobs, and I can see why I, my my eight year old, you know, he you know he wants to be a YouTuber and do oh, yeah. a Minecraft.
1: A new athlete or performer. You know, it, it looks like it is a glamorous, fun thing to do. And it might be. It looks um, fun. But I mean, have him choose a niche that no one else is doing on YouTube. And that's how a career is made. And it's the same for branding.
0: Yes. And yeah, so, find a
1: way to differentiate yourself and it makes the choice so clear for your potential customers on who to trust.
0: And I guess that's the maybe it's a natural talent, you know, is finding the ability to be able to stand apart and not be the me too. Uh, and then also still be, it's still, it's still receptive. Like, oh, that's different. And I like it. Like, I think that's a real skill to be able to do that. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, back to the strategy, uh, what did B2B or, uh, and B2C planning, what, what was that with the branding management?
1: Well, in the waste world, so B2B is business to business and B2C is business to consumer. And when we're talking about marketing, people in the industry have different strengths based on the types of clientele that they have. So if I'm doing the marketing for a clothing boutique, there is a certain type of language that I'm going to use for all of the work that I do based on the fact that we are talking to direct end users of the product. So if I was working for Nike, I'm trying to sell you product based on how I think you want to feel about buying our shoes or athletic wear. If I were selling to the boutique itself, if I was a clothing manufacturer, trying to convince them to buy the clothing that we make to sell at their boutique, that would be a B2B situation where I'm trying to convince them not how cute these clothes were, but how much money they're going to make on selling them and the quality and that, you know, these clothes aren't going to fall apart when their customers buy them. Yeah. So you can just uh, your brand look good. And so um, for me being in the industry that I'm in, I often have to code switch and change from my clients who might be working on putting together a really beautiful presentation to go out for municipal bids so they are technically a business to a business in a manner of speaking versus trying to teach you as a resident of the city maybe don't throw away or maybe not put trash in your recycling bin and here's the education you need to make the right decision without it being like miles over your head and talking about different types of plastics and the chemical composition of them yes that's a conversation
0: okay and so thank you for breaking that down because uh it makes sense you you would present your business plan differently to another business than you would a consumer so, exactly. so if i'm trying to if, I, if i'm breaking this down properly uh your b2c is more of the educational side and then your b2b is more of the persuasive
1: uh, yeah, we could say that. Um, educational in terms of helping them choose the right service provider for their needs, if we're talking about us as the customer, and also educational in terms of, okay, once you have decided to opt into this particular service provider, here's how to use their service to the fullest extent and get maximum level of satisfaction out of it. Whereas, yeah, with the B2B, it's, it's different. There's a totally different strategy at the end of the day the principles of good communication are universal so it's essentially doing the same thing communicating this brand's story in an effective way but using a little different flavor for whatever the end goal is and I like to help my clients analyze when we need to switch things up um And when we need to shift in a different direction in order to achieve their business goals.
0: And so with with all this planning, right, uh, and marketing and branding, how are you are you managing their budget for them? How is that discussed?
1: It really varies based on the relationship that I have. So some people contact me just to do one thing. And I call those like my a la carte clients where they say, hey, we have this opportunity to have a feature written by us and published in this magazine. Can you write it for us? And so that's like a one-off sort of, I'll have this short-term relationship with them where we will do this project, make this ad, write this article, build a brochure, whatever it is. And it's kind of one and done. And I give them the tools that they need, send them on their way and everyone's satisfied. Others will contract with me for, um, longer term relationships where they are, um, they perhaps have somebody that is working in sales and marketing and they're wearing just way too many hats. Mm -hmm. So they know what they want to do. It's just, they don't have the hands to do it. So I can be those hands behind the scene and that person and I can meet and set goals and determine who's going to do what part of this project. And then we collaborate. Others um, maybe have no in-house marketer at all. And I work as if I were in house as their coworker, head of marketing. And so I'll collaborate with sales, customer service, um, occasionally operations managers, just whoever we need to show up for meetings on their behalf to kind of present the marketing side of things. And um, yeah, and those can be like ongoing relationships that I have for, well, some clients for a number of years actually.
0: Awesome. And so uh, also with your, you also provide market research. Uh, How does market research meet audience segmentation?
1: Well, that's a good one. So if you don't know who you're talking to, you're kind of screaming into the void and hoping (laughs) somebody hears it. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but there is a lot out there to distract people. Um, So many platforms, so many, Things competing for our attention that if you don't have a strategy and have laser focus to know exactly who your audience is or who your, let's say, the biggest fish are in the pond that you want to go after, then it can be a bit wasteful of your marketing dollars. You're not getting the best return on investment. And so one of the one of the first things I like to do with clients is really sit down and make sure they understand who they're talking to. And a lot of times I will get a client that says, well, everyone's my audience. Everyone throws away trash or everyone needs X, Y, Z. And I'm like, do they really though? Like everyone needs shoes. True, for the most part. But the type of shoes that you are gonna sell to a kid playing high school sports are completely different to what you would sell to, um, a 65 year old woman Mm -hmm. and everything in between to a nurse or to a mechanic. And so you need to focus on what you offer and who exactly is the purchaser. So everyone in a household throws away trash, presumably, but then the question is who collects the information and makes decisions in the household. That's your audience okay so I like that yeah I mean you mentioned you have a child mm-hmm. that child throws away trash but they're not the one choosing uh, which service provider to take on yeah, if yeah, you, do yeah. have, you know assuming um, so yeah and now eventually we would hope that your child would become a customer of this trash organization um, but there are a number of years before your kid will be ready to, um, you know, have their own place and make those decisions. So I try to get them to step back and say, okay, maybe not everybody. So who are we actually talking to? And then you segment that up further and say, okay, well in your, um, let's say more urban areas, the decision maker tends to be this type of person in, um, suburban areas it's this type of person and then so on and so forth. And kind of, um, I guess chop them up even further and see how many more divisions we can make because the more targeted you can get, the more effective you can be. Because, like, let's say we're doing social media ads, you can choose, you know, household income, um, age, gender identity, um, type of job that they have, geographic region, and you can really divide it up that way. The message that you are delivering to the decision maker in um, this scenario is precisely targeted and doesn't come off cross as like tone deaf.
0: Yes. So they,
1: yes. Like, they're actually being spoken to because I'm sure you've seen ads where you're like, wow, they did not know me at all. Like bold of them to try to market to me, but they really didn't know who they were talking to. And that's somebody who really didn't um, do the right market segmentation.
0: Awesome. And I've never heard, I've never heard that term before until I was looking at our, Talking points. And uh I I appreciate marketing because that is the middle point between obviously the customer and then making the sale. Is mm-hmm. that's how that's the uh the reach out. And if we don't have that down pat, mm-hmm. then we're just this person with this great idea, uh hoping people walk up to our building and, and buy our stuff or ask us. Yeah. Our services.
1: And I some people think of marketing as kind of slimy, like we're really? playing tricks. And we're like, oh, yeah, oh, got oh yeah, because
0: like, they lying. find it manipulative,
1: kind of like fool people into buying these things. And I really hate that because when I work with brands, um, one of my deal breakers is don't make me lie for you. Um, you know, it's a personal integrity thing, but it's also some of the stuff that some of my clients do is dangerous work. Like working in the refuse industry is one of the deadliest jobs in the world the nature of what they're exposed to versus the, um, machinery that they're working on. Um, so I kind of say, let's, let's start off by being completely honest with each other, never putting ourselves in that position where somebody could get hurt or our words could be used against us. So, um, so there's that aspect from a, like a safety and integrity point of view, but also I kind of view marketing more as like, matchmaking. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So I'm helping I'm helping customers find the products that they need and helping brands find the customers that want their services. So I'm just matching up the two. I'm not trying to sell something to somebody that doesn't want it. So I like like that I'm not trying to convince you to buy something that would never work for you or would never feel authentic to who you are as a person. So that's no, kind of yes.
0: my. And I love your personal conviction on that. As far as hey, not lying. Uh, I mean, not only could it hurt your brand, but also it's all about doing. You know, doing right. Uh, yes, it, it is meant to be persuasive, but I think naturally we naturally all market ourselves. When we're trying to persuade somebody to give us do us a favor or to date us. You know, or yeah. to kind of give you know help yeah. me out a it's little the bit.
1: Dinner that you make. It's, yes. It's <laughs> life is nothing but negotiations
0: yes and so it's just flipping into a, a business aspect really i look at it as just you providing a, a opportunity to somebody that would have naturally not been uh promoted to them uh, as they were walking to work or you know driving yeah. by that's really how i look at it um so uh with that uh, with that where do you what has been your your biggest Uh, I'll start off with what has been your biggest uh, lesson you've learned in being an entrepreneur in this in this niche.
1: Oh, gosh, that is a great question. And I don't think I've ever been asked that before. My biggest lesson. I think it's perhaps that you don't realize how many people out there want to help you and how many opportunities exist. If you are just bold enough, strong enough, crazy enough to ask. And by that, I mean, people seem to be naturally helpful and want to allow others to succeed. And I'll say, if you're not seeing that, you might need to expand your friend circle or your business horizons um, but asking for advice, checking to see what opportunities are out there. Like I had no idea when I first started, I just came across this by accident. It was a networking thing, actually, that there are um, small business providers or small business advisors, sorry, Mm -hmm. that are there to help you free of charge. And it's, you know, through Mm -hmm. state and federal grants, and you can go to these Offices and sit down with an advisor for an hour and say, Hey, um, I think I need investors to help me get this business idea off the ground. How do I put together a proposal? How do I do this? How do I access these types of resources? How do I get training on XYZ? And their sole job is to help you reach your goals. And I had no idea that existed. Like I was gonna do this by myself. And then I found out I could get one of their small business advisors. So I asked showed up and they welcomed me in and my small business advisor has been a great resource
0: was this through city city hall or something like that
1: um you know what i'm gonna look and tell you exactly who it is what i've been learning okay it's the small business administration so it's sba.gov and they have all sorts of resources and local assistance to find out where your district office is. And, you know, there might be one in your city or one, you know, a little bit outside. You might have to travel a tiny bit, but basically their whole existence is to help people in the United States, you know, get businesses off the ground, help them be successful. There's a whole segment for veterans. There's a whole segment for women-owned businesses. So, there's tons of it, so you're looking for a small business development center, awesome. and
0: awesome. also be kind of like
1: housed within. Like, if there's like a private business development center, they can also like have offices within that. Like, my local office is called the Innovation Connector, and it's a place that has co-working spaces as well as some other business resources. And my small business advisor through the SBA is housed within that. She actually like rents out one of their offices. So yeah, it's a huge resource. And I never would have known that if I hadn't done some sleuthing and kind of hunted down the answers, made a good solid network. So reach out to people, ask what they know.
0: That that is awesome advice for, uh, and please uh, replay this part of the podcast uh, to make sure you get that website um, that, Yes,
1: (laughs) sba.gov. Yes. <laughs> I yes. mean, they even have export advice. So if you were making a product that you knew was going to go over well overseas, they'll help you figure out how to get it, get it there.
0: That is pretty cool. Um, because a lot of people, it's intimidating to try to start a business. And maybe some people need help. I remember, I, I think, I don't know if it was before we started recording, at the beginning, but we talked about, uh, I had the idea, uh, I just don't know how to get there. And that is like the perfect bridge uh, example right there that can help people out, yeesh.
1: Yeah, well, and they can help you vet your idea too. So like, even if you aren't ready to start, like if you're working your day job and you think, you know, I really, I have this idea for this type of business. I don't really know if the market's there or what the competition is like. You can go in there and they'll help you come up with a business plan and figure out like, you know what, maybe my market is really oversaturated for what I want to do, but if I chase this demographic, it opens wide up. Or if I relocate and go to this underserved area, then, you know, I could occupy the entire market. It may not be the amazing experience that I've had with it because each one is run by, you know, a different person serving various types of populations. So don't get discouraged if it's not, you know, the Cinderella story where the fairy godmother's coming down to grant all your business wishes, but <laughs> yeah. use, you know, use that person to make connections to the people that will help you.
0: Oh, no awesome and at least it, it, it at least gives somebody a start of, of in the right direction on what they can you're be. not
1: alone yeah you don't have to google everything there I mean they could even provide mine will send me books based on what I need oh. to learn about yeah stuff like that where it's already been kind of vetted by her as like this is a pretty good resource for let's say learning like Basic level accounting things. And I don't do my own accounting. Like I outsource that because that's just something I don't need to worry about. But there are certain, let's say, numbers that you need to know about your business to know if you're successful or not. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she would recommend, like, here, read this book. This will tell you what every um, executive needs to know about accounting. So it's like, okay, brilliant. She has like oh. turned it into the Cliff Notes version for me. That way I'm not getting like an intro to accounting book. And you know, diving through the weeds when I don't need to. So they're good. You
0: got a mentor.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And my other advice would be that I didn't know going into, but I kind of instinctively did was build yourself an advisory board, especially if you're just starting out. So, like, you know, you think of advisory boards for businesses, and you're like, okay, well, maybe, you know, if I get promoted to be an executive level officer of a company maybe someday I will get an advisory board that somebody will help me appoint and they can like mentor me. There's no rules. You can have one today of people that you trust in business or people that are in your industry to give you feedback.
0: So this is true.
1: Like the first week that I started my business, I I called some trusted people in business that I knew and said, you know, I know that the waste industry is not necessarily your niche. Although for one, it was, but I said, I'm gonna to come to you with questions and need advice. So can you mentor me through this process? And yeah, sure. So um, you know, don't wait. Build yourself a little network of supporters that maybe aren't your mom, because you know, your mom might always be supportive of what you do, or whoever that person is in your life that's like always your cheerleader, like no matter how bad you mess things up. Yes. Find some people that'll give you like real talk on, you know, if that was a good idea or not, and how to not do that next time.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah, because um yeah you know you always got that one person like oh that's a great idea I'll support you in every single thing that you do uh yeah. and it's like really it was, it was not the smartest idea
1: uh, yeah and I mean those cheerleaders are so so helpful but not in every situation sometimes you do want somebody to give you kind of straight talk I'm like yeah you really messed that one up this time here's what you should have noticed when it was going south and here's how to get out of that
0: and so um, I spoke earlier about sales and how I suck at it. And so um, <laughs> I wanted you to kind of break down to me, okay, your sales, uh, I guess you could say your, your sales strategy when it comes to like lead generation or advertising, uh, definitely social yeah. media, because that's like the, that's, social media is still, in, 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 the, in the world of uh, marketing, social media is still new in comparison yeah. to how long marketing has been out.
1: You know. Well, the worst thing is it does not work for me personally because the guys that I'm selling to are not on Instagram or Facebook. So that's your demographic. It? Yeah, yeah. So it's knowing your audience, making sure you are talking to them where they are. So um, if you were um, talking to young mothers, Instagram might be more your style than LinkedIn. So it's about knowing where they congregate, which is why it's so important to know your demographic and to target them with great focus. That way you are not just spending all your advertising dollars or all your time trying to cover everything, just be like really good at the one thing that they're on. So anyway, backing up about sales. I used to think I hated sales and it was because I was selling things I didn't believe in. So my very first job out of college was sales assistant for an Anheuser-Busch distributor. So I was selling beer and I hated that job because I didn't (laughs) like beer. I didn't like having to go into bars and um, root through people's cold storage to count how many cases of Bud Light that they had and deal with the patrons that were in the bar at like 1130 in the morning. It's just, it was not a good vibe for me. And I kind of went into the rest of my career thinking, gosh, I really hate sales. I don't love it. I feel like I am trying to get people to buy a product that they don't believe in. And so I'm trying to kind of, it felt sleazy. And part of that was because the demographic or the, the geography that I got assigned to was in an impoverished part of the state. So there was pressure on us to sell the higher end products because you know the company made more on those, but these people just wanted the lower end types of beers. Plus my company had recently purchased the territory from another distributor that I think went out of business due to retirement. Like it was a happy ending for them. But the customers were very loyal and saw us as like these usurpers coming in and like, so it was never a good um, relationship that we had with our people in that part of the state. And so it always felt like I was just fighting. It felt like combat all the time, just nothing but conflict over what we had to offer. And, oh, our old guy offered us these prizes. I'm like, yeah, that was like 10 years ago. It's changed. (laughs) But like people were very loyal. So fast forward um, to my most recent job, I got to see, I guess, a more professional level of sales happening and -hmm. got to understand the relationship building that they did. And it still seems like really intimidating and a tough market. Like, I don't know if I could make that my full-time job, like to live or die by how my sales performance is. Although I guess I kind of do now, Um, but today I view it more as that matchmaking thing that I mentioned earlier, that I'm trying to see if a potential client needs what I have and if what I have fulfills their need. So really I'm approaching people and trying to help them self-diagnose their problems so that at the end of the day, they realize the only logical choice is me. And that does take some guts to get out in front of people. Yes, yes. And I credit that to, and I told my husband this once, um, I told him, you know, I don't think anybody's ever told me no. Like I, and this was back, um, we were, I don't know if I read something somewhere or listened to a podcast that it was talking about all the barriers that people face in business like women in business in particular, or um, people of color in business. Like there are so many more barriers and so many times when you get shot down for promotion or told you can't do this, or this isn't going to work out for you because of X, Y, Z. And I told my husband, wow, I must be really blessed or have some sort of beautiful life because no one's ever told me no. Like I can't remember a single instance where a teacher said, wow, you're not good at that. You can't do this. Or You can't do X, Y, Z, or this isn't going to work out for you or a business mentor kind of saying the same thing. And my husband said, oh, no, people have told you, no, you just don't hear it when they say no. (laughs) And that was like a lightning bolt moment because I was like, oh, my gosh. And he didn't mean it in the fact that I don't listen to people, but that no is not the worst thing that I can hear from somebody like I go into things assuming that no is the status quo. So people like will try to pitch what they're selling and think, oh my God, it's going to be the worst thing ever. If they say no, they were already going to say no, like that because they didn't know about you. The answer was always no. All you can do is get a better answer. It can't possibly be worse.
0: No, I like that. I like that thought process and uh, back to the, I guess the persuasion, but um, I I like that thought process. I do. That's pretty cool.
1: I Uh, just try to keep it really I guess. But what I think, so for me, when somebody says no, it usually means they don't understand what you're doing. Okay. So you didn't tell the story well enough or there's not enough budget or not enough, um, let's say human power to pull something off. So they might be like too, too focused on something big that's going on right now and they really can't dedicate time to whatever it is yes. you want them to do. So I rarely, well, let me back this up. When I work with somebody, like if I bring on an employee or um, somebody that I'm collaborating with, like my pet peeve is never tell me no. I want to know no because. And I want to know no, because we don't have enough time to get this done or no, the budget is too small or no X, Y, Z. And that helps me wrap my mind around. It's not just a rejection. It is an explanation of very practical limitations, but then I can figure out how to work around or maybe cut my losses and say, okay, I was barking up the wrong tree for this. Like I need to refine my strategy because I was clearly asking somebody for something that was beyond their capability of giving me at the time.
0: Yes. And the best comparison I could think of uh, based of what you broke down to me is um, you, ever heard, you ever heard of door knocking when it comes to wholesaling? People knocking on people, uh, homeowners' doors for foreclosures. And
1: so, yeah, man, that is uh, scary. I could not do that job.
0: So um, I've talked to a few wholesalers. I've interviewed a few. One of them, one of my favorites is Kevin Cho. Uh, Cho. Uh, don't remember what episode he is, but I'll put in the details. But he was knocking on doors, and he had a whole script that he memorized. And sometimes before you even get anything out, people would be like, you know, get out of here, curse them out. Mm-hmm. But one thing that between talking to him and it was another wholesale I was talking to, you do get people's attention if you say, hey, I would like to help you. Not, hey, I heard you about to get foreclosed on and I'll buy the house from you. Uh, but then you've, there's like no win for them. Uh,
1: yeah. Well, and, and so, you've made them laugh <laughs> bad about a situation that's, you know, probably embarrassing, Difficult. Oh yeah,
0: for sure. Especially coming from a stranger, like, Hey stranger, how do you know I'm in this situation? Period. I don't know who you are. I'm probably already irritated. Uh, but when you find a a way to uh, help them still, and I'm not sure the details, but there, there are some ways that people are able to, they were, they were able to buy a foreclosure from the people that owned it and then was Mm -hmm. able to resell it back to them in a way that they could afford it. So rearrange, uh, the mortgage because now Mm -hmm. I own it. So I'm assuming that you'd have to probably do this by buying it in cash. Usually, and that's usually how wholesaling usually works. You buy it in cash. So I buy it in cash and I, I put you on a seller financing mortgage to where you can afford uh, that new rate. Uh, that way I helped, you helped me and I helped you uh, situation. And so I, that's, it seems like that's how you're proposing it. This telling the story the best, uh, better is, is the key. Because uh, you're right. Sometimes it's like, oh, that that did not come out right. I meant to say it like this, so that <laughs> yeah. way. Because in my head, it made a lot of sense, and I knew you was going to say yes. Because who wouldn't have said yes to how I had it playing in my head? And then I just, when it comes out of my mouth, it just like, oh my god, that was horrible.
1: Yeah. Well, and the other aspect of it that just occurred to me is really about knowing the value of what you have to offer and respecting yourself. So, as I've said before not everybody's going to be your customer. And I meant that in terms of telling my brands that, but as a business owner, you need to understand that there are people that can't afford you and that's okay. And sometimes you're going to pitch to them and they're going to say, you know, no, the price is too high. And it's like, really, are you just going to cut your own prices to meet that? Or are you going to, Try to refine your strategy to get in front of the people who can afford what you have to offer. And there are tiers to everything. I mean, there's a difference between um, Walmart shoppers and Target shoppers, and you can tell that walking through the store. And they don't try to cross over into each other's territory. I mean, although they're selling roughly similar goods, yeah, yeah, they know who their audience is, and they respect the brand enough to continue to play in that arena. And you have to do the same for yourself when it comes to sales, that sometimes these no's that you're getting aren't rejections because that there's anything wrong with you, it's they're not the appropriate fit for you.
0: No, and that, and that makes perfect sense. And it allows somebody to hone in on how they need to uh, pitch uh, whatever they're yeah. trying to market. Uh, and so um, the... The second to last question, and this is the one that we were giggling about before uh, we started. Uh, Your business, Three Circle Branding, why uh, did you call it that?
1: (laughs) Okay. So it's technically Circle Three
0: Branding. Oh, Circle Three. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry.
1: Sorry. But, um, okay. So this is a somewhat long, convoluted story, but bear with me. I really enjoy brands that have layers of meaning to them. So when you think of circle three, it's, it's a little vague. You can kind of ascribe whatever meaning you want to it at first, but back when I was looking for options, I was trying to make a connection between trash and what I wanted to do with it. And some sort of nod to something in literature, because I'm a big fan of reading and, um, literature, and especially mythology, where everything's very symbolic. So I was thinking back to what I'd studied in my undergrad years, which included mythology and another class on Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. And this is, um, you may have played the game Dante's Inferno or had some sort of connection to that, but this is basically the very, very long poem where Dante is describing hell purgatory and heaven so basically whatever happens to you in the afterlife based on what you've done in your mortal existence and you may have heard of this of like oh this is like the seventh circle of hell or some other sort of reference and um the third circle of hell happens to be described as a garbage dump and i thought that was really kind of fun and it was a good literature reference Um, But it has a bit of negativity to it because that's where the people who have, um, I guess, pursued the sin of gluttony are forced to spend eternity because they treated their bodies like a garbage dump. So then their eternal punishment was to live in a garbage dump. And I thought, well, you know, that's kind of how people see the trash industry as something that's like a little hush hush. We don't really want to think about it because we're all kind of guilty of throwing stuff away. Um, but I thought, well, what if I could take that and turn it into something good, something that's thriving, something that is opportunity. So I I did that for my own business. I took, you know, a third circle of hell and turned it into circle three, which seems pretty benign. And that's what I like to do for my brands. I like to help them turn whatever their situation is into something that is positive and upbeat. So there was that literature nod that I liked and felt representative of my brand of turning garbage into treasure. And then there were um, two other business considerations. Um, I could have named myself something very trash themed, but I thought, you know, what if this is really successful and I want to sell it someday or get into a different industry entirely? So if I went with something like the garbage girl, that would have pigeonholed me into just staying in the trash industry. Whereas if I do circle three for some other type of product, then it's easy to make that division between the different types of services. And then kind of the last consideration was I've seen some brands get into trouble when they've named the industry after the founder in terms of, you know, that person does something, ends up in the news for a negative reason. And then the whole brand is trashed because it's tied to that person's last name. So, or, you know, whatever it is that associates that founder with the brand. So I realized that's, that's a branding risk for me now and um, for anyone who's running this company in the future to have it tied to Jessica Shrout. So I thought, let's do something that is separate from me, um, versatile enough that I could use it on a number of industries if I ever choose to do that, and something that's like a little fun symbolic thing for me. So that's how I got there. I don't actually tell a lot of customers that because it's such a long story. And they think, oh, wow, you named us after a garbage dump that you read in some dusty old book. But to me, it has a lot of meaning of tying in what I went to school for and how I'm turning literature and writing and communication into a viable career for me now.
0: And I, and I had asked that question earlier because I believe that, uh, people don't just name particular, if it's not their name, like you said, right. Or Mm -hmm. um, something generic, like the garbage girl, then I'm always going to think that, you know, somebody named their company that with a, with some type of background and that background is uh, usually kind of correlates with their why as to why they're doing the things that they're doing or what they were, what their interests were maybe as far back as childhood or for you, like in college. Uh, which kind of segues into my my last question, which is what is your big why? What is your rich state of mind? Why do you like to uh, love to do what you do?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's a really amazing question. And I don't know if it's ever solidified into something that is um, just a short statement on I'm doing this because I love blah, blah, blah. But for me, it's been a journey of, I guess freedom, really. I realized in my last corporate position that so much of what I was doing was based on the whims of, and I'm going to say this not in a negative way, it could have been women too, but based on the whims of men that okay. I was spending my whole career on the shoulders of these people. And that's a big gamble when mm. your health insurance, your 401k, your everything even where you live sometimes is tied up in the decisions of people above you. And for many that can be seen as comfort of like, I don't have to make these decisions. I just have to show up and do what I do go home at the end of the day, not really worry about it. So I'm sure that's a comfort for a lot of people, but for me, it wasn't for me, it was a stressor. What are they doing? Why are they doing this? This seems like a crazy decision. What's going to happen to me? And after a while watching them, um, I would go up and ask them what books they were reading and create my own reading list based on what they told me. I was unconsciously doing like a mini MBA program by studying them. And by no means do I know what I'm talking about on that at all, but I was observing them and trying to understand what they were doing and why they were doing it. And I really didn't all the time, but after a while, I realized I could do that. I could be the one making the decisions. Like I have what it takes. If I find the right resources, get the right education, I can be the person that makes these decisions and I don't have to wait for them to promote me to that position. So I love that. In that, yeah, in doing that, I've been able to travel. I've been able to make a speaking career for myself. Um, I've met, Amazing people across the globe doing it, and um, all because I stopped trusting other people with my, you know, financial and career success.
0: And it's up to me. I mean, if I fail, this? it's all
1: on me. But that's kind of a gamble that I am more comfortable taking.
0: I, I appreciate that uh, you um, sharing that side of, of your thought process, um, because there are other people like that that feel that way. Um, Freedom. And we spoke a little bit about the millennials. Uh, Freedom is, has been like the focal point and doing something that matters and feeling like you're a part of something bigger. Um, And so you've definitely hit all those points. Uh, Where can people find you? Where can people find your website?
1: um, Well, they can go to circle3branding.com and that's three all spelled out, not the number. Mm Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Jessica Shrouts. That's S H R O U T. And yeah, I think those are my only two really big public platforms, other than like personal social media stuff. Um, my clientele seems to be focused more on LinkedIn, so that's where yeah, you that have to does find sound
0: me. like your demographic. As soon as you told me the industry, I was like, Yeah, I can see that. Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's muscle-wise. that's key, though, you know, yeah, of you know, a certain age. You know,
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, your, your, your demograph is not on Snapchat, uh, and TikTok.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, but I love TikTok. It's so much fun. Um, it's such a creative platform and I love watching what people are doing on that because eventually they will be my customers. So I'm, you know, they're going to grow up someday and they're going to become the decision makers. So while I would advise businesses to focus on where their buyers are right now, don't sleep on the younger demographics, you know, watch them, learn them. That way you're not, you know, in your fifties and sixties, trying to figure out what these darn kids are up to, you know, this you kind true. of have embraced the culture too. So. This is true. Yeah. Well,
0: Jessica, it's definitely been a pleasure. Uh, I love your different take on branding and the niche that you have picked. Uh, this has definitely been a first and cause you're episode 51. <laughs> uh, so after 50 episodes, uh, definitely definitely. Uh, got something. It's, it's refreshing to know I'm still getting new, fresh content that people have not heard from us yet. So this is pretty dope, Jessica. Thank you. I hope people, because uh, I'm going to put the link to your website and all your inf- contact information on the description. So I want people to, to reach out to you, Uh, maybe in your area that uh, need your assistance. Uh, yeah. Maybe you may end up doing some type of consulting, you know.
1: And I love to advise new business owners because it's It is a challenge, but it's not as hard as you think. And there are people out there willing to help you. So, you know, you got a quick question, please reach out. Awesome.